Heavenly Father, I'm so glad to be back, Father, and to be again in the fellowship of men and women who love you and love your word. And I'm so happy, Father, that you've given me the privilege to be a part of this fellowship and the chance to speak and to teach regularly. Thank you that others have done so well in my absence and continue to do so many things in this body to make us who we are in Christ. Thank you, Father, for the word of God. Thank you for its truth, for its importance in our life. Thank you for the clarity in which it reveals both our sin and the goodness and righteousness of Christ so that by that comparison we can be convicted and be brought into conformance with the image of Christ. We thank you for that glorious work that you're doing in our hearts. And you're doing it, Father, in so many ways, including through the story of Joseph. The picture that he forms of your son is a sovereign example of how you have been setting all things in place since the foundations of the world and bringing all things to its appointed end. Let us be in awe of that, Father. Let us rest in it, knowing that a God who can orchestrate events on this scale can certainly address the needs of our life. Let us be worshipful and attentive as we attend to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was a brief break, but we're back to studying the story of Joseph's rise. He is at the lowest point in his life, like we've said before. He's languishing in Egypt, now having spent 13 years in both slavery, now in prison. And two years ago, in prison, he encountered a man who God is going to use to change his life. That man was the cupbearer. You remember him? Joseph helped this man at a time when this man was with him in prison by interpreting his dream. And as we learned in that prior lesson, Joseph has been gifted by God with this spiritual ability to interpret dreams. A very rare gift, as we learned. And Joseph has used this gift whenever the Lord has given him an opportunity to serve through it. And the Lord's about to give Joseph yet again another opportunity to serve through the interpretation of dreams. Because the Lord has given Pharaoh a dream that no one else can interpret. None of his wise men who use the black arts to interpret dreams, none of them could give him a satisfactory answer. And when you see that in the text, you realize instinctively that God is at work bringing Joseph and the Pharaoh together because he's gifted Joseph with this spiritual ability to serve God through the interpretation of dreams. And then he has given Pharaoh a need in his life that only Joseph's ability can satisfy. That's such a simple and beautiful picture, by the way, of the way the Lord works through spiritual gifts. You could say, in a sense, that spiritual gifts are divine solutions for divine problems. God places spiritual gifts in the body of Christ specifically so that they would address spiritual needs in the body of Christ. And the gifts, as they are expressed, serve the purpose of building up believers and strengthening them for further ministry. But at other times, our gifts become a way to serve, either directly or indirectly, unbelievers as well. And that connection sometimes can be to produce faith in that individual or other times it's simply to direct the unbeliever's steps in some way that they will fall into the plan God has orchestrated. And that's what you're seeing happen here in Pharaoh's case. He's not going to become a believer through this encounter with Joseph, but God is going to use Pharaoh to accomplish a greater plan on behalf of his own people, the people of Israel. Having received the dream, Pharaoh now seeks for an interpretation And that gives opportunity for that cupbearer we talked about to step forward with his God-inspired memory 
of what Joseph is capable of doing. Let's go there now. Chapter 41, verse 8. Now, in the morning, his spirit was troubled. Speaking of Pharaoh, of course. So he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servants, and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. We had a dream on the same night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now, a Hebrew youth was with us there, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related them to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one he interpreted according to his own dream. And just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me in my office, but he hanged him. Well, we hear at the beginning of this passage, Pharaoh appeals again to his wise men, as I said in my introduction. Now, wise men in this culture meant two kinds of powers or two kinds of abilities. One was diviners and one was sorcerers or magicians. Neither could give the interpretation to Pharaoh. Diviners seek to predict the future, while magicians seek to control the future. But both do this through the work of the enemy, the work of the black arts, Scripture says. The enemy, we know from Scripture, has the power, to some degree, to give these abilities to men who serve him. But the power that the enemy has is limited. It's limited both in insight and it's limited in power. The enemy can only share with men through these black arts what he himself is planning to do or what activity he is currently engaged in doing. The enemy has no special insight into what God is doing. He cannot predict the future of God's activity. He does not have any insight into God's heart. He is a created being, so he is not omniscient. He is not omnipotent. But to the extent that the Lord permits the enemy to act according to the enemy's desires, then it is possible for Satan to empower men with the ability to, quote, predict the future, so to speak. But what they're actually predicting is what Satan is declaring to them he intends to do. So that when Satan follows through on his plans, it becomes as if these men have predicted the future. No different than if I told you that I'm going to go eat at a certain restaurant this afternoon and then I go and do that very thing. Have I predicted the future or have I simply announced my plans in advance? If the Lord permits the enemy to carry out the plan he desires, then it would appear as though the future has been predicted. And that's the source of power that these men in this black arts, as we say, are in doing for Pharaoh. That's also why they can't interpret these dreams. They can't see into something God does not reveal. And so God has restrained them because he alone wants Joseph to be able to have the power to interpret these dreams. It's been two years since the cupbearer was in prison with Joseph, but he only now remembers Joseph's ability to interpret. You remember when he was leaving the prison, Joseph said to him, now when you go see Pharaoh, put a good word in for me. Well, so much for that. It's been two years. He's done nothing. Now, that makes some sense when you think about it, because once the cupbearer was restored into his position of authority, the last thing he wanted to do was to remind the Pharaoh of his past displeasures with him, which put him in jail in the first place. But what's the old saying? Better to leave a sleeping dog lie, right? So it makes sense. 
In fact, notice in the text we just read this morning, the cupbearer begins this whole testimony by making an apology for even bringing up the old late unpleasantness, as the saying is, right? So this is the really the first logical opportunity for the cupbearer to make mention of Joseph. And the only reason he's willing to do it now is because he can take this nugget of knowledge and use it to the Pharaoh's advantage. So it becomes sensible, if you will. Now, the more important question that we should consider is why does the Lord wait two years to bring this dream to Pharaoh? I mean, the Lord could have initiated this next phase of his plan at any point after the cupbearer left prison, right? Could have been a day, could have been a week, could have been a month. And when the Lord had brought the dream, then the rest of the plan would have kicked in just as we see it happening here. Joseph's additional two years in prison then were made necessary entirely because the Lord waited two years. There's no other explanation for it, is there? So how do you explain Joseph's additional waiting time in prison? Why is the Lord wanting that? Well, glance ahead in your Bibles to chapter 41, verse 46. Look down the page a little. And in verse 46, you read this. Now, Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. So God's plan, it appears, for Joseph was for him to wait until Joseph had reached the age of 30, and then only then would Joseph be given the chance to stand before Pharaoh and then from there go off into a place of rule over Egypt. But he had to be 30. That age is yet another picture between Joseph and Christ. Jesus was 30 years old when he began his public ministry. That is also the age, interestingly, in the law, when a priest could begin to serve God in the tabernacle. Now, is there something magical about 30? Well, maybe there is, and we just don't understand it. But whether it's based on some inherent ability that comes upon a man at that age, or whether it was simply God's appointed time for purposes of his own, doesn't really matter. The point is, it's in Scripture that way. Jesus follows it that way. And so in Joseph's life, it had to be that two more years would go by so that he could be the right age to fulfill the picture that God was intent on producing. So at the time of age 30, he's elevated into this place of ruling so that he might match the age that Christ had. And from this position, by the way, he not only rules over Egypt, he will also rule over Israel. In other words, Joseph will become a ruler for both Jew and Gentile, that picture of Christ. Now, it's lessons like this that help us maintain perspective in experiences we have in our own lives, isn't it? Have you been required to wait for something to change in your life? And when I use the word required, I mean that in the full sense of it. Required, not desired, not wanting it to be that way, but it just had to be that way, and you don't understand why. You wanted to be released from a burden of some kind. You wanted to be relieved from an illness, from a trial. You asked God, solve my problem. Get rid of this issue. You asked him, bring me a blessing. Intervene somehow. And the answer didn't come. Maybe not at first. Perhaps never. Not in our understanding. How do you relate to those disappointments? How do you reconcile that with all of the things Scripture says at times about the lovingness of the Father, the graciousness of God, and the mercy he shows, and so on, the blessing of being in the family of God? Well, I'm not going to have an answer for every one of those. But I can tell you, Joseph's story 
teaches us that men cannot see enough of God's work to ever fully understand his purposes apart from what he reveals to us. What he chooses to reveal to us. So you don't have enough data. That's the way I look at it as a guy with some science in my background. We don't have enough data to draw a conclusion in moments like that. Look at Joseph. While Joseph was suffering in prison, he's waiting and wondering, where is God and why am I still here? It's been two years since I talked to that guy, the cupbearer. Where do you turn when your knowledge and your understanding fails? Where do you go when it doesn't make sense? When your data is incomplete? When your insight is lacking? What's our source? Well, the solution is stop focusing on the data. Don't use your experiences and your emotions and your ignorance, frankly, to judge your situation. Turn to God's word and rest in God's word into the promises of God, into the goodness of God, the character of God. The writer of Hebrews says, we know that he will never leave us nor forsake us. We know that the word itself testifies that the Lord may even take our life if he chooses to, but even in that there is glory to be found. I love Joseph's story for many reasons. But if I had to pick one, a practical reason, the thing that I can cling to the most in my everyday experience is that life comes with suffering that God can turn to good purpose, even when we don't understand it. And, in fact, it may be better that we don't understand it, but that we simply submit to it. Joseph was made to go through 13 years of things you and I will hopefully never have to experience so that he could be a picture of Christ. I dare say that if he had been offered the opportunity to do that from the start, here's what you're going to face Here's what I'm going to do with it. Would you sign up? Would you enlist for this, Joseph? I don't know that any man is strong enough to do that. I know Paul said he was shown the many things he would have to suffer for the name of Christ. And my bet is that that was a far greater burden on Paul than it would have been if he had simply been ignorant from day one. Be careful about what you want to know in God's plan. Genesis 41:14. Then Pharaoh sent... And called for Joseph and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I've heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Pharaoh spoke to Joseph. In my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile and behold, seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile and they grazed in the marshland. Lo, seven other cows came up after them, poor, very ugly and gaunt, such as I had never seen for ugliness in all the land of Egypt. And the lean and ugly cows ate up the first seven fat cows. And yet when they had devoured them, it could not be detected that they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as before. Well, then I awoke. But I also saw in my dream and behold, seven ears full and good came up on a single stalk and lo, seven ears withered, thin, scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them and the thin ears swallowed the seven good ears. Then I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. So Pharaoh, obviously having heard about Joseph's amazing abilities, he calls for Joseph, says, come before me. Now, the ancient historian Herodotus, who wrote about cultures of his day, including the cultures of Egypt, he reports that Egyptians were renowned 
for their fastidiousness over being clean, bodily cleanliness. In fact, you may have noticed that in most of the ancient drawings you see of people from Egypt, their, their head is fully shaven. And you never see any body hair on them. That's because they associated body hair with uncleanliness. And there's some truth to that, especially if you're in a culture in which you can't wash regularly. That's where lice hang out and other creatures, perhaps. So it would be customary within the culture of Egypt for all men to shave their hair. And I don't just mean their head. Every body part was clean of hair entirely. You can be sure that Joseph did not appear before the Pharaoh with a stitch of body hair on his body. And the Egyptians probably didn't have chic, super smooth, close razors and all the uh, comforts of our day. And then, to make matters worse, the scripture says, and I hate this, it just makes me shiver every time I read it, they hurriedly brought him before Pharaoh. Look, there's nothing that works well when you, when you mix the words shave and hurry together. So no doubt this process would have been tremendously uncomfortable for Joseph, to say the least. They then would have followed by dressing him in fitting apparel, because all of this had to be done the right way. You had to appear before Pharaoh in the right way. And then, as Joseph appears before Pharaoh, the king tells him that he has been brought here to this place to interpret a dream. And you have to imagine that until that moment, Joseph has no understanding of what's going on. So even before he hears the dream, I love what Joseph does. Many have pointed this out, of course. He declares, I'm not the one here interpreting this dream. This is God at work. I'm just the vessel. That's just a great shining moment for Joseph. And you can't overstate how awesome it is, really, because it would have been very easy as he appears in this moment before Pharaoh to do differently. I want you to remember what this must have been like. He is standing in this opulent, amazing place before literally the most powerful man in the world in that day. And the aroma of that power and the opulence of that place would had to have been impressive and overwhelming and intoxicating for anyone. People go nuts when the president stands in their presence today, and he's just some guy we threw into office with a vote. This is truly royalty in their day and power unbelievably strong in their day. And the king comes to you in that moment and says, I need you. No one else can help me but you. You're the key to what I need. Do you understand how much that can corrupt a heart? That's the sense of the phrase that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. This is one of those moments. Now, he can't overplay it, but he could have played it. But he doesn't. I mean, Joseph knows he can interpret this dream. He knows his gifting. He knows he can impress this guy. But what his response says is, I'm nothing. I don't take any credit for this. It's all God if it happens at all, which is absolutely true. Honesty built on humility and strength. Scripture doesn't ask for weakness. It acknowledges we have strength in Christ. But strength built with humility and with honesty is a powerful combination. Strength without those other two things just becomes arrogance. He could have laid claim to the glory here for himself because he knows it would have accomplished something good for him. Remember, he's a prisoner. He wants out of jail. He could have bargained for that. Joseph gives all the credit to the Lord. I love that. Let's emulate that example. In the way God gifts us, let's serve him. But when we serve, never allow our results to be credited to us. That kind of stuff goes to your head if you're not careful. You've got to be in a mind that says, I know where my power to help really comes from. And I'm not going to be fooled by someone who thinks or even just wants to flatter that it's coming from something in me. So Joseph is our example once again in that respect. Then Joseph hears Pharaoh's dream. 
We've heard the dream, of course, so I'm not going to reiterate the details. He just says you got the seven fat, seven lean cows, seven good ears, seven scorched ears. But there are a couple of new pieces of information we did not hear in the past. First, these thin cows were the very worst cows that Pharaoh had ever seen. So what it tells us is the degree of difference between these two is as stark as you can imagine. So the bad is really, really bad. That's the first new piece of information. The second thing is that despite the fact that these fat cows are so nice or the fat ears are so nice, when the bad ones consumed the good ones, it didn't change. It tells us that the excess is not enough to make up for the lack. That's another interesting piece of information. So now let's look at what Joseph does in his interpretation. This is a little longer passage we're going to read from verse 25 all the way to verse 36. Now, Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years and the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt. And after them, seven years of famine will come and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt and the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine, for it will be very severe. Now, as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God and God will quickly bring it about. Now, let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Then let him gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. Let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine that will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land will not perish during the famine. Also, Joseph interprets and he begins by announcing that the two dreams are really speaking about the same thing. The reason they're repeated is so that they can be emphasized to Pharaoh that it is true. It is coming. It is coming quickly. And they're given to Pharaoh because he says the Lord wants you to know this. He wants you to know something's coming. There are going to be seven years of famine, which are going to be preceded by seven years of abundance. So here's what Joseph tells Pharaoh. He says, if you know this is coming, it is incumbent upon you to take steps in response to what God has revealed. When God reveals, it comes implicitly with the expectation we do something with it. It's not just for our own entertainment that he lets us know these things. So here is that example of Joseph saying you're supposed to do something with this knowledge. The thing you're supposed to do is that a time of abundance that you've been told is coming is your time to store up and be ready for the famine that is going to follow. And that famine that's going to follow is so severe that it's going to consume the entire storage of whatever you put aside in that time of plenty. And so it's going to be important how you manage this. It's going to be important where you store it. It's going to be important what you do to protect it. In other words, you've got to husband this abundance carefully or it's not going to work out in your favor. I like Joseph's emphasis here on preparation because it's important for us to remember when you make decisions about your own personal resources, whatever God provides to you, that you have to be thinking about plans for the future. Scripture teaches us that the Lord always makes provision for his children. Jesus taught this on the Sermon of the Mount. We're not forgetting any of that. But this story teaches us 
that God's willingness to provide does not eliminate our responsibility to take opportunity in times of plenty to be prepared for times of want. And that God's provision for that future lean year may have been provided in an earlier year of plenty. So what would it say if we ignore those opportunities and squander them, and then as the years of need come, we wonder, where is God our provider? Maybe his answer is, I did provide two years ago. Didn't you make good use of what I gave you then? I just want us to keep in mind there is a balance here. There is a way in which we can put ourselves in a time of need that is not a reflection on God and his goodness, but on our lack of stewardship. So Joseph gives Pharaoh this plan, and he asks him to take advantage of the warning. And now it's Pharaoh's turn. He has to act. He has to appoint a leader. He has to empower that person with the authority to tax, to store, to protect. And then when the hard times come, all of that storage can come to support the nation. I want you to notice that those suggestions do not follow automatically from the dream. Do you notice that? We can see his interpretation flow naturally from the dream. Seven of this, seven of that. Lean, fat, got it. Okay, now it makes sense. But where in the dream does it say you have to appoint a man to store it all up? Where does it say in the dream that you have to take 20%? Where does it say in the dream that you have to protect the storehouses by guarding them? That's not in the dream directly. Nevertheless, it seems Joseph knew to do these things. How did he know? Well, I would argue that he's drawing upon a second spiritual gift. Joseph's always had two gifts in view as we've studied his story, and they've always worked very closely together. He's always had this ability to interpret dreams, which demonstrates his great insight and wisdom in spiritual matters. But he has also demonstrated throughout the story an ability to lead others, to be a man who takes charge, who finds ways to get things done. That's why his father appointed him over all his brothers, even though he was the youngest. And he is putting both of those gifts together now as he stands before Pharaoh. He's taking what he's learned from the dream and he's taking it the next step with his gift of leadership. And he's saying, you know what, Pharaoh, if I were you, here's what I would do with the information you just got. Those two qualities, by the way, provide yet another picture of Christ. In his first coming, Jesus demonstrates the power of God in teaching and in wisdom. He speaks spiritual truths. He gives knowledge concerning future events. We would say he acted as a prophet in his first coming. But in his second coming, the Lord's going to demonstrate his authority and his power to rule over all the earth. That's the second side of his ministry. So in Joseph's ability to both predict the future and speak in truth, and also his ability to lead men wherever he goes, he pictures both sides of Christ's ministry, both in his first coming and his second coming. And then just as Jesus reigns at the right hand of the Father immediately after his resurrection from the grave, yet again another picture here. As Joseph is elevated from his low point in prison, where does he move directly to? He doesn't go in steps. He doesn't go from the low point to middle management for a while, and then he earns his stripes and he moves up the chain. He goes from prison, the lowest station in Egyptian society, to the right hand of the Pharaoh. And Jesus moved from the grave to the right hand of the Father. Another picture of of Christ. So let's go to the last section for this morning. Let's go to verse 37. Now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. 
Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. He had him ride in his second chariot and they proclaimed before him, bow the knee. And he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh named him Joseph Zephnethath. Paneah, and he gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. Well, Pharaoh shows his own wisdom here in his recognition that Joseph is the right guy for the job. And so Pharaoh decides that he will become second in control of all the land of Egypt. And he says, no one else could do this except you. It's proven to me you have a divine spirit. Now, don't read too much into that. He doesn't say you have the spirit of God. He certainly doesn't use the term Jehovah here. He's speaking the way a pagan would speak. You seem to have something spiritual in you. You seem to have a God in you, which is all that this man knew. But even in what he said, it pictures the way Jesus had the spirit come upon him in his own work of ministry in the public eye. So it can be seen as a bit of a picture there as well. Pharaoh puts him as the right hand. That means at his second position of power. Again, another picture of Jesus at the right hand of the father. And it says he will rule over the entire land of Egypt. Now, practically speaking, why does Pharaoh have so much confidence in Joseph? The story starts to play out here almost a little too much like a Disney movie, doesn't it? You can almost feel the credits getting ready to wrap because, you know, everything's just so pat and perfect. But there is a real strong answer politically for why this would happen. In other words, we can see this actually as legitimate, reasonable activity on the part of Pharaoh because it goes back to the issue we talked here in the past about with respect to the cultural difference between Pharaoh and his people and the culture that he ruled over in Egypt. Pharaoh is a Hicksaw, a Semite people, a foreign people who invaded Egypt and conquered Egyptians. The Pharaoh being a Hicksaw and a Semite, he was an adversary to the indigenous people who are Hamites historically. But Joseph, Joseph is also a Semite. He's from the Hicksaw's land. So there is something there that would endear Joseph to Pharaoh. And when you consider what's about to happen, the stress on the economy, the stress on the people, the high taxation that's going to emerge, all that comes with that. This is a very destabilizing set of activities. And a foreign king trying to retain power over another people doesn't want to take and entrust second in charge to a local because that just puts them one step away from deposing him and taking back rule. But a fellow Semite in the form of Joseph, that's a much safer bet. It makes good political sense. Here again is another piece of evidence in how the Lord has laid all the necessary groundwork to bring Joseph the success that God wanted him. I want you to think about what it took to get Joseph into this position. In 13 years, Joseph spent in Egypt. He has already learned the language, including how to read and write hieroglyphics. Not easy to do. He would have learned the culture, the government from Potiphar, the customs. He would have been familiar with Pharaoh's guard, the elite guard and the court officials, which he now has to command in order to protect all these storehouses. Thirteen years might have felt like God waiting around, twiddling his thumbs, delaying the process. But it was God preparing Joseph. 
Never lose hope in God's power to accomplish great things through you, especially if you show patience and obedience. We already mentioned that Joseph was elevated to the right hand. Another way to say it is prime minister. That's really the position he was given. But in that role, he represents Pharaoh both to the nation and to the whole world. In the same way that you see in modern governments, prime ministers are the ones who travel to other foreign governments. Prime ministers are the ones who greet foreign dignitaries who come into the land. The sovereign, the king, just stays in the palace and waves as they go down the road. That's the role Joseph has here. He's also given the ring. That ring had a seal on it. That seal on that ring was what you pressed into wax in order to put the seal of the pharaoh, the signature, if you will, on official documents. It's what made the document have the force of law. Third, he receives a garment. This would have been the typical garment that would have been worn. A robe would have been worn by someone in Joseph's position. Third, he receives gold chain and a a royal chariot. And then he's told to take a victory lap around the nation in his royal chariot. Hicksaws, by the way, introduced chariots into Egypt, and it was by far the most advanced weapon of its kind in the day. Everywhere Joseph would go, we're told, in this chariot, wearing this robe, with this ring, with this necklace, what would happen? We're told that throughout Egypt, every knee will bow. You ever heard that before? And even though Pharaoh is the reigning authority, Pharaoh's not stepping down out of the throne, he's still the reigning authority, nevertheless... It says that nothing in the world of Egypt could happen without Joseph's approval, without Joseph's word. And then we hear Joseph's name is changed to an Egyptian word. You know what that means? God has spoken and he shall live. The sense is that the word of Joseph brings life. Then finally, he's given an Egyptian wife. Now, this causes people some concern, I realize. And we get a little wrapped around the fact that she's the daughter of a priest of Egypt, that there's all this wonder of, is this right for Joseph to take this wife? The only Gentile people that God specifically told Israel they could not marry were the Canaanites. She's not Canaanite. She's just Egyptian. Much like Boaz marrying Ruth. She's just a Gentile woman. And moreover, as a daughter of a prominent member of Egyptian society, this marriage formally makes Joseph a citizen of Egypt. He is now being accepted into the culture or the citizenship of Egypt. Like Joseph, Christ has earned his right to rule over the creation by his righteousness and by his sacrifice and obedience to the Father. He has been exalted and given all authority by the Father. Christ will reign over creation under the Father's authority. And in that day, every knee will bow. In Philippians 2.5, he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know when that happens, he will not do that alone. He will bring his Gentile bride with him. That is the church. One more picture of Joseph and Christ. Both have Gentile brides given to them by that higher authority. By the Father for us, by Pharaoh to Joseph. You and I have been joined by faith and we can look forward to that that coming day of rule every bit as much as Jesus does, no doubt. Let's go to prayer.
Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father, for pictures in Scripture. It is fun, Father, it's enjoyable to find these things, for they delight our hearts and they inspire us to see even more truth in your Scripture. But I thank you mostly, Father, for the hope and the confidence and the faith that it creates in us. For if we can see you working over eons of time, doing these amazing things, creating in one man's life perfect representations of another life to come, then certainly, Father, we can see the truth of what's written and we can understand the power of the God who does these things. We thank you for that reinforcement this morning in Joseph's story and thank you for his testimony of humility and of strength and of his wisdom and use of his gifts and of his obedience. We thank you, Father, that you've given us a man like Joseph in the Scripture. Now we just ask, Father, that you would give us the power to follow him in like kind and to be, to be like Christ, the one he pictures. Let our church, Father, be a place, an outpost in this city where this kind of humility with strength, this kind of willingness to serve in our gift and to proclaim truth to all who will listen is, is put to great use. I pray you would make us bold and you would give us um, opportunities and you would prepare us and strengthen us for those opportunities. Bring us back next week, Father. There's those who could not be here, but we wish to see them again. And we hope there'll be new people we may greet in your name next week as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.